I'm Urban Hannon, the editor of The Josias, and this is The Josias Podcast, a conversation today about the American Solidarity Party. Welcome to all of our listeners. Welcome especially to our benefactors on Patreon. And welcome today to an old friend who also just so happens to be the vice presidential candidate for the American Solidarity Party in the 2024 race to the White House. Ladies and gentlemen, Lauren Onak. Lauren, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me on, Urban. So just to give our listeners a little background here, Lauren and I have known each other for pretty much our whole adult lives, which I guess is now more years than I'd care to admit. Lauren was my immediate predecessor as the president of the Columbia Catholic undergraduates back in college. She's an alum of Barnard with a degree in English, plus a master's in education from Hunter College. Lauren got the coolest job out of any of our friend group after graduation, working at the Morgan Library, which, if you don't know, is the private library of Pierpont Morgan, father of JP, collector of all kinds of fun old books and manuscripts. But that is another podcast for another day. Lauren is now a wife and mother of three, the first of whom is special needs. She's based in the Boston area these days, where her lovely husband, whose Polish name I still can't pronounce properly, teaches at Boston University. Lauren is also a Dominican tertiary. And in case all of that wasn't enough, she is also running for vice president of the United States of America. Anything I missed there, old friend? No, I, I think that about sums it up. Very good. So it's just Lauren and me here today. Producer Joe, unfortunately, is not awake yet because both Lauren and I are recording from Europe. And Joe, of course, is back in uh, U.S. Central Time, so it's about 4 a.m. wherever he is. Um, but I'm recording from France, where I'm trying desperately to learn some French this summer, which our listeners are welcome to pray for. Um, and Lauren, where are you joining us from today? Uh, I am in Poland, in a city called Tarnu, which is about an hour east of Krakow. And I just find it really funny that we are going to be talking about American politics and we are both in draft <laughs> right now. <laughs> it's good. I actually got invited over. Uh, so I'm in a little, well, uh, our listeners, I presume, know this, this city, but I'm in a small city in France called Tours, which, of course, is St. Martin of Tours town. Actually, my French school is on the same uh, place, the same. Um, I can't think in other languages right now. It's going to go great on this podcast. <laughs> the same square square is that word in english um i wanted to say piazza we're just going to mix it all up here uh it's on the same square as the basilica of saint martin so i get to go make a little holy hour and pray some of my office every day down with saint martin's relics which is very cool but why did i mention this because uh here in tour on the 4th of july which was right after i arrived i got invited to this family's house and I showed up and thought, oh, that's so nice. This family from the parish feels bad that I'm an American alone on the 4th of July and they want to console me or whatever. But I get there and everything is like 4th of July decked out with uh, like American flags. We had a kind of French version of hot dogs. So it was on baguettes and with beautiful sausages, but they called them hot dogs and it was great. And I learned that the family actually is American. They're all American citizens. Beca or except the husband and father, because the wife and mother, her grandfather was an American soldier on D-Day who married a French woman during World War II. 
And so this family invited me over, but they're back and forth in all the time to the U.S. They still have connections over there, too. So anyway, uh, it was an interesting 4th of July. But oh, wow. American politics abroad is always an adventure. Oh, yeah. We also flew out on the 4th of July. And um, it has been, I mean, traveling with young children, they say it's it's not a vacation. It's just parenting in a different location, which is very <laughs> true. Um. And you were talking about food. I mean, it's a stereotype, but the amount of times a day Polish babchas offer you food, it's just amazing. <laughs> I, I, It sounds like a stereotype, but it is true. Anything, any problem you're having, like maybe you're hungry. I'm like, well, maybe I am hungry. <laughs> maybe that's the <laughs> issue. So it's it's um it's so there's such a hospitable um, culture here. And it's been great. My kids are getting to soak up a lot of time with grandparents and cousins and aunts and uncles. So it's just been really beautiful and really chaotic and exhausting at the same time. Well, we appreciate you making a little time amidst the chaos to chat today about what you're up to. So the American Solidarity Party, I want to start with two questions for you here as we dive in, and I'll let you pick kind of the order you want to take them in. So first of all, I'd love to hear just about the history of the American Solidarity Party. How old is it? Where did it come from? Who started it, et cetera? But then I'd also love to hear kind of the personal version of that for you, your history with the American Solidarity uh, Party. Um, and so you can, yeah, choose whether you want to give kind of the autobiographical piece of that first or the Wikipedia entry for the history of the American Solidarity Party. But uh yeah, I guess orienting our readers with those histories would be awesome. So the American Solidarity Party was founded in 2011, um, incorporated in 2016 as a Christian Democratic Party. Um, Christian democracy has been around um, and there are Christian Democratic parties in Europe, but um, they don't tend to exist in the form that they uh, were first Um thought and created in. Now there are some in Latin America, but there are no Christian Democratic parties in the United States except for ours. So Christian democracy, can you just give us a quick uh, soundbite on how to understand that? Yeah. So um, it was uh, it's sort of a way of understanding the uh, modern politics. So um, democracy and the state in line with Christian teaching and one of the big documents for Catholics on this is Rerum Novarum by Pope Leo the Thirteenth. Um, Protestants also have some um, some sort of uh, roots in this as well. Um, Abraham Kuyper being one of the main um, people to write about this idea of um, how do we uh, deal with you know these different ideas popping up in Europe at the time, uh, communism, capitalism, and how do we um, bring it back to uh, an uh, an ideology based in Christian values and a Christian understanding of the human person, and then bringing that onto um, the state and politics, and specifically people of faith and how they participate in politics. Um, how does that work? What does that look like? That's a lot of um, sort of what Christian democracy is trying to get at. And so we as a party were started by a group of people who are dissatisfied with the what we call the duopoly of the party. That's just the, sort of the term we use to describe the Republican and Democratic um, control of the political system in the United States. 
And those people um, decided to found a party um, in this vein because it it resonated with their values and they wanted to have a choice in who they voted for um, that was someone who was closer to these Christian principles than they felt that the major parties were. So in 2016, we ran our first presidential ticket. Um, we received under 7,000 votes, but it was um, nevertheless just getting our name out there. And in 2020, we ran again and we were able to get um, ballot access in about eight states, I believe, right in access in um, more states and um, ended up with about 40,000 votes in that election. Um, so in the meantime, the party has been working internally to build up um, how do we run candidates in local offices? Um, how do we get the message of solidarity out there? How do we build our volunteer base? So there's a lot that goes into it. It's not just People tend to their attention tends to be drawn to it during the presidential cycles because that's sure. when people become the most dissatisfied with their options. But in between presidential cycles, when I got involved, it's really about building up our state chapters, finding people to run for local office and trying to become political parties or in some states, political designations, meaning that people can actually register with us like they would a normal party. Um, so that's sort of a broad strokes history of the ASP. Um, so now Peter Sonsky and I are running on the 2024 ticket and we just had our first in-person convention as a party. So the people I've been working with online for two and a half years, I finally got to meet. And that was amazing in Plano, Texas, about three weeks ago. And um, and yeah, in terms of my history of the party, I feel like you and I were both going through something of a political shift in, it started in college, right? I mean, becoming more um, more interested in how our faith uh, intersected with politics, me becoming pro-life um, from, you know, entering college, a pretty feminist college as a sort of a pro-choice or, um, you know, not quite pro-life, um, thinking of myself as a feminist to really um, realizing how important life issues were becoming involved in the pro-life movement over time. And um, at the time, you know, the intellectual circles that we were a part of were more right-leaning. And um, and so I sort of uh, voted that way and considered this to be the best way I could support life issues. And I would say that a series of events sort of, I don't want to say radicalized me, but sort of started to change my views of... Um, the GOP and the status quo. Um, one of those things was graduating in 2010 in the 2010 economy. Um, I know you remember the recession and, and how difficult it was to find jobs and how we had laid out this cost of a, you know, this tuition cost for these elite universities, let's be honest, and how difficult it was to find employment. You were happy to make anything. Um, and for a lot of us, you know, it it started now we're sort of seeing it um, and people are talking about it all the time. But this idea that our generation is later to get married, own homes, have children because of these um, this sort of economic uh, environment we sort of started in. Um, so I was watching friends with degrees from Columbia um, having to go on government assistance, food stamps, Medicaid to make it work if they didn't 
you know, unless there were very specific sectors of the economy they went into, right? So friends that became teachers or social workers, um, not making enough to get by, wanting to be open to life, wanting to have large families and having that be extraordinarily difficult in a way that didn't seem to make sense to me. Um, Another big factor for me was meeting my husband and coming to Poland and sort of seeing um, the quality of life here and how it was different from the United States. Um, So one of my nephews here uh, was born prematurely and he spent two months in the NICU and my in-laws didn't pay for that. Um, So I, you know, Thinking about the exorbitant costs of healthcare and college tuition in the U.S., and then comparing it to what my in-laws were experiencing here, um, was a big wake-up call for me because you wouldn't call—I mean, polls would be—they would kick you out if you called them communists or socialists. That's not what they <laughs> have here, but yeah. um, but they do have. The state does prioritize things differently than we do in the U.S. to the benefit, I think, of the citizens here. So that was another big wake-up call. But I would say the biggest thing for me that led me um, to sort of on this political journey that ended in the ASP was um, giving birth to my first child who has a rare genetic syndrome. And the amount um, that we had to rely on the state at that time, we were living in New York State, to provide her with therapies. Um, Now we live in Massachusetts. She's on the Massachusetts version of Medicaid. the amount of help that we needed as a sort of a social safety net to take care of her, to make sure she got all the therapies she needed, all the treatments she needed, you know, the the myriad of specialists she had to go to, especially in the first year of her life, all of those things. Um, I'd sort of been, you know, trained to think in a way that relying on the state for things made you weak or made you, uh, you know, you weren't, you weren't making it on your own. And suddenly we were in the situation where not only do we need the state's help with certain aspects of our daughter's life, but the whole framework that Americans tend to view things through it, uh, what you can achieve, what you can accomplish being the ultimate arbiter of your worth was suddenly all thrown into question for us. I think my husband and I are both first children, overachievers, you know, nerds. And suddenly we're like, we'll be happy if she can walk. We will be happy if she can walk. Like that is the standard. It changed everything, and so I found myself less and less satisfied with um, the political rhetoric on the right. Um, I still uh, felt very strongly my pro-life values and couldn't imagine myself joining the Democratic Party, even if they might be better on certain social issues, um, or I should say on certain economic issues, but. Um, all this to say, in 2021, when I think after 2020, a lot of us had more free time than we had normally had because we were our social engagements. Wow, why? <laughs> <laughs> our social engagements were a bit curtailed. And I saw, um, you know, I'd voted for Brian Carroll and Amar Patel in 2020. That's and the ASP candidates yeah, from 2020? They, they were the ASP candidates in 2020. I wrote the man in New York. And pretty sure I spelled their names right, I think. Um, but <laughs> I, you know, I, I had heard about the party by that point. I thought this is great, but I don't really have time for this. Politics isn't really my thing. And it, as 2020 sort of unraveled into, you know, the giant dumpster fire that it was, um, we, uh, 
I had a lot more time on my hands. And so I, I saw an invitation from um, a local ASP group to sort of an online meeting about um, how to run for local office. Basically, it was about how to figure out how your town is organized. And I thought, this sounds interesting. And Albert Thompson, who is one of the used to be a national committee member, he helps run um, the Young Americans for Solidarity, longtime party member, was giving a talk on um, how to how to figure out how your municipality is structured. And this is somewhat typical for my experience in things. The next day I got a call asking if I wanted to lead Massachusetts, <laughs> lead the Massachusetts chapter of ASP. Um, so I said, yes, but I don't know what I'm doing. And they said, neither do we. And we all are just going to do this together and learn as we go. So that's really been my whole um you know, experience in the party is really learning as I go and taking this sort of aversion to politics and this feeling of hopelessness and changing it into what good can we do through this party? What fresh ideas and um, policies can we sort of intrigue you with and bring to especially Christians and people of goodwill that will resonate better with their values, that will sort of reframe things for them? Um, so I, I've been leading Massachusetts, mostly um, work, doing local things like working on political designation in our state. And um, they knew I was turning 35 before the next uh, presidential um, inauguration. That's right. So I had not thought about that. Yes, that that is a factor. Um, you can't. You, well, you shouldn't run uh, if you're if you're not. And um, and. I thought, oh, I don't, you know, I don't have time to be, you know, super involved in the, the presidential ticket. No, you know, they're, they're suggesting things. But then I met um, Peter Sonsky, who is the presidential nominee um, for our ticket this year. And he is just everything you would want a politician to be in the ideal world. I mean, he's a locally elected official in Connecticut. So he's serving on the finance committee. He's ser- school board. He served on select council, which is in New England, what we're New Englanders call city council, select select board. Um, father of nine, a grandfather. He's a knight of Columbus. He's worked in journalism um, and he's worked for the National Basilica in D.C. He's worked um, in a variety of media positions. And it was just clear to me that he was going to take this race seriously, not in the sense that we are moving to the White House. That is not happening um, in 2024, but that he was going to do this professionally and he was going to um, sort of be able to speak to people in a way that was engaging and um, and just represent the party's values well. So once I met him and he eventually asked me to be his running mate, I just felt like it would be such an honor to work with him um, to advance this project. So that brings me to where I am today um, as the vice presidential candidate. That was a long history. Yeah, no, that's awesome. Um, it's uh, helpful to hear the kind of steps that led you to become the Julia Louis-Dreyfus of the ASP <laughs> ticket. How many Veep jokes do you get a day now from the various people in your life? You know what? You announced that you're running for president of the United States. You get weird looks. You announced that you're running for vice president of the United States. And people, the the funniest reactions I've gotten 
Um, I had someone email me back saying, dude, I think you've been hacked for my email <laughs> account. Um, I, I had, um, you know, and I posted on, on my social media, people that said, the United States of America? Like, is she running for vice president of some <laughs> local organization or is she confused? You know, so <laughs> it's definitely an eccentric fact. Um, I think my mother-in-law's uh, reaction was, didn't anybody else want to do it? <laughs> so, <laughs> so you get a lot of you get a lot of uh, strange looks. It's definitely an eccentric thing to do. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, yeah, you were alluding to our kind of common uh, development politically and uh, you know Catholicly over the past decade, decade and a half or so. Um, and it's interesting to me to think back to when we were in college, and obviously the American Solidarity Party itself didn't exist um, formally at the time, but also looking back, there really wasn't the kind of quote-unquote third way um, sort of option for Catholics, not just in terms of political parties, but even in terms of the way we kind of self-categorized um, ourself or conceptualized to ourselves what we were politically. And I know a lot of our listeners on the Josiah's podcast are younger, um, which is great, but I think it's difficult to explain um, or kind of uh, convince younger people that people just weren't that disillusioned with the options on offer um, 15 years ago. There really was a sense in which you were a Republican or you were a Democrat, or if you weren't one of those two things, you just weren't thinking about politics at all. You sort of didn't care the um, the idea of being someone who was a very committed Catholic, um, but very, very dissatisfied with the GOP. I'm not saying that there was no one out there like that. Of course, there have been um, kind of different Catholics in U.S. politics or in the U.S. political space, especially in the kind of journalistic or commentarial space, who have been more in touch with Europe, more influenced by European approaches to such things, uh, and just generally critical of the way American quote-unquote conservatism is shaped for a long time. That's not something new. But the trickle-down of that into the general public, I think, goes along with, in some ways, a larger alienation among Americans, period, from politics and from the political options on offer, right, over the past decade or so. But it's interesting to think back and think who I was and kind of where I was when it first occurred to me that, like, maybe being pro-life doesn't necessitate being, like, an almost libertarian kind of free marketer in terms of how I understand economics. Maybe those things don't naturally um, go together or kind of entail each other, but it really felt, I mean, even at an Ivy League university, right? It really felt like, no, if I've decided that I think abortion is wrong, then I also need to think that, like, basically the existence of the state is a bad thing and we need to kind of dismantle this and fight for quote unquote limited government. Uh, and just really push each individual's kind of 
entrepreneurial brilliance and the sort of meritocratic thing you're describing, but that meritocratic thing on the right, which had taken the form of everyone really needs to pull himself up by his own bootstraps. And that's the um, sort of impetus for understanding um, political action. And Patrick Deneen was a big person for me. I mean, he's still a friend. Patrick and I were together earlier this summer at a conference, um, and I look up to him a great deal. But when I was in college, he was a huge influence on me and a huge um, sort of prophet of the times to me and drawing attention to the way in which the <laughs> GOP's social platform at the time and the Democratic Party's or sorry, uh, the GOP's economic platform at the time and the Democrat social platform at the time actually complemented each other really well because it was basically individualism and a sort of libertinism applied to two different facets of our life. So on the right, you had, and some of this has shifted, the right is not what the right was back then and the left mm-hmm. is not what the left was back then. But at the time, it was very much right, like you either prioritize individual liberty in economic matters, in which case you're a Republican, or you prize individual liberty uh, in social issues, in which case you're a Democrat. And I think seeing through, first of all, the sort of illusion of quote-unquote individual liberty as America or Americans were conceiving it, but then also realizing just how sort of random and hodgepodge um, this set of issues that had been thrown together into a political platform was, and then the sort of really, really depressing realization that on the right, the issues I care about are not the issues that actually are pushing this party forward. Mm-hmm. The politicians themselves, for the most part, the donors in very large part, are not especially interested in... I mean, obviously, we've got the sort of complicated abortion situation in the U.S. we've got right now after Dobbs, which, uh, I mean, to me is... Uh, the overturning of Roe is unequivocally a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but that also politically has led to a very, very complicated situation today where it's actually kind of radicalized people more in a lot of places against the pro-life cause. So trying to figure out what the adequate response to that is today is tough in a democratic system where unfortunately the populace is largely against us. But I think of something that today no one talks about politically, which is the marriage question which Mm -hmm. when we were in college was hugely debated and just Mm -hmm. realizing that the GOP does not actually care about this. They're going to give up on this as soon as it's lost. Um, And now, I mean, there's a lot of things one could say about Donald Trump, but the joke that he's the most um, pro quote unquote gay marriage president we've ever had and he's officiating same sex marriages in Mar-a-Lago and whatever else. Uh, saying, okay, uh, this man might be a figure of the right in some important ways, but the things that first brought me into this party or that I thought I cared about in this party um, apparently were not all that important to them after all. So I think the kind of disalien- the um, alienation, the um, yeah, dis-ease, the lack of feeling at home in either of these parties 15 years ago led to a lot of the questions that frankly led to the founding of the Josias in about 2014, um, but also I think have led to Catholics, even Catholics who think we really need to vote for the GOP at the presidential level or whatever, 
um, to do that in a way where the whole thing is held much more at arm's length intellectually. And I think that's really healthy. I think Catholics have learned to be a counterforce or to conceptualize themselves as a counterforce as opposed to letting the American liberal system kind of set the terms of what the options for us are. Um, So on that, I'd love to hear from you a bit about Yale's platform, about what the ASP actually stands for, Christian democracy and um, pro-life causes and solidarity, which is a great word to have kind of taken and put as the... um, the sort of lodestar of your party name, your party platform is great. Um, but how does this catch out? What are you all actually running on, as it were? Sure. Um, one thing I wanted to mention um, when you were talking about sort of, uh, you know, the progression that this has taken over the past 15 years or so. Um, someone sent me this Alistair McIntyre um, piece um, from 2004, actually. So this was Bush Carey. Um, talking about um, the only vote to cast in November. The only vote is, worth is, casting in November. No, yeah. Is, is no vote at all. And so um, I think you're right in the sense that there there wasn't as much of a, uh, a vision of this third way um, before. And I do think the party is hopefully um, filling in uh, some of the the things that he that that McIntyre believed were lacking in terms of, you know, the political parties aren't asking the right questions and they're not um, moving things in such a way that's going to benefit the family. So if you were to open up the American Solidarity platform and start reading through it um, section by section, I think it would be um, familiar to a lot of Catholics because the basic framework is almost entirely based in Catholic social teaching. Um, when you were talking before about like sort of the hodgepodge of issues in the platforms of the two major parties and sort of the mental gymnastics that it takes to say, well, I'm pro-life, so I'm going to defend all these other positions as well. Um, I totally remember doing that and, and you know, just repeating back talking points and, and thinking back, like, how silly was that? And this party um, gives you something, I feel like, to vote for instead of against. So we are founded on um, a group of principles. Um, and I won't go through all of them with the listeners, but sanctity of life, um, the centrality of the family, um, subsidiarity, um, meaning that, um, you know, uh, the um, if a smaller level of government can take care of some issue, then they should do so that the, you know, to let local issues and let the community be central to decisions. Um, The ownership economy, which is what we call (laughs) when you start using the word distributism, people's eyes start to glaze over. So we (laughs) we use the term ownership economy, meaning um, that ownership of the means of production should be as widely distributed as possible. So readers of Chesterton might be familiar with that idea. and then um, a sort of uh, a care for the environment that comes from the perspective of um, stewardship, right? Good stewardship. So not that ranking people below environmental concerns, nothing like right. um, population control or things you're hearing on the left, um, but that we have a duty to care for our world in order to pass it along to our children. I would say the centrality of the family is one of the biggest um, points. I think one of the things why I read the platform that sort of shocked me was 
we're advocating, um, when I first read it, we're, we're advocating for families to be able to exist on um, single income as well. So I think so many families, you know, and I don't, I don't have, uh, you know, a stake in the mommy wars about, you know, working versus not working moms, but many families just don't have that choice at all. And I think um, what we're advocating for is um, bringing that choice back to people, saying that um, you need to provide a living wage to families. Ideally, a single income can provide that living wage to families. Um, We do actually talk about marriage in our platform um, as the natural family as being the ideal um, uh, set for um, for society while we support um, you know, we call for support of families of all kinds um, economically, but um, we haven't lost sight of that issue as as much as I think the GOP has. Yeah. And then I think a big chunk of of what we talk about that I feel like when you and I were, you know, sort of involved in these discussions years ago um, is we're allowed to talk about social justice like we're we're allowed to uh look at the bishop's voting guide and not skip the bottom half of it. You know, if, if we talk about um, the social safety net and um, and how the state should, has, a, has an obligation to support the most vulnerable people, we talk about racial and economic justice. Um, those aren't things we need to sort of let one side or the other co-opt. We can talk about them in a coherent framework. Um, another piece of the platform that um, I think will would probably be recognizable to folks is sort of this idea of the consistent life ethic. So being pro-life, um, meaning, yes, like overturning Roe v. Wade, it was a good thing. And we recognize that and we celebrated that as a party when that happened. Um, and, and then how do we provide for those women and those families? How do we create a pro-life um, culture? Um you know, I remember uh, we'll link to it too in the uh, the post for this podcast. But I watched your acceptance speech from the uh, um, convention. Yeah, convention. Yeah, sorry, the convention in Plano a few weeks ago, and you told the story of working with the Sisters of Life in their program in New York to help women in crisis pregnancies, and it sounds like what they're doing on a kind of local level as a charitable apostolate um, as part of their charism, right? That's something that's great and beautiful that you and other women get to assist them in helping these women in crisis pregnancies. But like so many things, that's not supposed to be something that's merely coming from supererogatory charity. That's not supposed to be something that is merely people going above and beyond the call of duty to help those who are in desperate situations or not even extraordinary situations, but as you say, just very, very typical situations of difficult family life of difficult. I mean, you look at the medical bills associated with being pregnant and giving birth today. You look at the tax structure and the way that it fails to incentivize people to enter into family life. Um, and stay committed in that family life and so forth. Um, it seems like, yeah, I was just thinking that the American Solidarity Party wants to take a lot of the good things, the extraordinary things that the Sisters of Life do, 
and try to make them a lot more ordinary. Yeah, I was um, I was part of a platform committee this year going into our sort of virtual convention where we work out party business details. And to me, the maternal health plank, we strengthened that a bit because I feel like post-dobs, that for me is a, is a huge area of concern. How can we be supporting pregnant women um, better? But also, you know, zooming out, I think this breakdown of community, it doesn't only apply to women in crisis pregnancies. I think COVID expedited something that was already happening. This idea, uh, this sort of like social atomization that lots of brilliant people have written about, like people can read, you know, way more intelligent accounts of it. But I, I do think that our focus of bringing things back to the local is a, is in a way to address that community breakdown, like getting to know your neighbors again, getting to know your town's institutions again and be involved in them. I think that's a big part of what we advocate. And yeah, it, I spoke about it at during the speech, but there are there were so many barriers set up for these women um, beyond even the decision to have their child or not. And you're right, it shouldn't be, they shouldn't be relying on a group of sisters with a building with maybe 10 bedrooms, you know, to take a few of them, the lucky ones who are going to get, you know, um, help. This should be, if, if it's, it's like a, a reordering of the priorities of our whole society. Do we place the family first or not? Do we place children first or not? Right now we're not. We're, we're placing greed and wealth and all these other, you know, individual freedom in this sort of liberal understanding of freedom all above the needs of children, the needs of families. And um, that's no way to build a culture. And we are already seeing the effects. The effects are breakdown and we're, we're seeing the breakdown happen. Um, so, so yeah, I, I think that folks that go ahead and read our platform, you're going to have, um, it's going to be a refreshing take on some of these issues for them. That's awesome. Yeah, both of us, I just realized, have been saying things like individual freedom or individual liberty. And we have video going, so I can see that both of us are using air scare quotes every time we do that. Podcasting, of course, being such a visual medium, um, hopefully our <laughs> listeners are uh, informed enough and have a clear enough sense of what we think about such things that you know that we're being a bit tongue-in-cheek with that. Because the truth is, right, that what... Catholic social teaching and what the Josiahs and what the American Solidarity Party stand for is the right kind of liberty, right? The true liberty that actually sets us free from the things that are bad and that would inhibit us from being happy and living good lives and make us free to take a, you know, surveys, pink hairs, good Dominican um, sort of approach uh, to set us free for the things that we need to live a good life too. So it goes without saying that we're not opposing liberty. We just have some questions about the way that liberty might be defined in contemporary America. Where exactly. <laughs> if this is liberation, yeah, give me something else. Um, but uh, yeah, it's about stepping into that vacuum where I think everyone is sort of universally unhappy um, with the status quo. I mean, even people who are incredibly involved in par partisan politics today, right? If they're not unhappy in the sense of having a list of complaints about their party platform, they're just unhappy, period. We've built a system that 
is making people um, incredibly unhappy and describe as incredibly unhappy, um, self-describe that way. And so I think trying to address that general dissatisfaction, that general sadness, that general anxiety, right, which is something else that a lot of intelligent people have written a lot about, um, but is tied up much with this atomization when you're separated from any kind of meaningful belonging to any communities you try to come up with quote-unquote communities um, that you can belong to and I think this is a lot of our identity politics today is people longing for connection being able to say I am x in a thousand different categories um, but all of those are abstractions right that's not actual community and so trying to come into that void and say here is something that you can actually give yourself to um and be a part of a common good that's bigger than yourself that is quote-unquote in align with our values but that's just a nice way of saying it's true is actually good mm-hmm. yeah and you know I just want to emphasize for folks listening, I mean, there might be parts of our platform that you don't necessarily agree with 100% or that don't interest you. But our party is made up of a lot of different um, people. I mean, people taken from both the left and the right. And so if you're interested in getting involved, you know, just get involved, jump, jump in, because you don't have to have a perfect understanding of these issues. And you don't have to think that, you know, this is the answer or, you know, um, I heard a, a, a fellow Pelican, we call ourselves Pelicans, it's a symbol of the party, um, describe political parties as sometimes it's just the bus that gets you closest to where you want to go. And so I don't <laughs> want anyone to feel like, oh, well, I don't, you know, I don't know enough about, you know, X, Y, Z, just um, it is like a range of people. Third party politics is really interesting because you're meeting a lot of people who are who have been dissatisfied from both sides of the spectrum. Yeah, just disaffiliated yeah. all around. So I I definitely want to ask more about third party politics in general. But first, I, I want to jump back real quick. The Pelicans. Tell us more. Why the Pelicans? So Pelicans are a symbol for Christ as many of your listeners might know this is from this old medieval idea that the pelican would peck its breast to feed blood to it, its blood to its children and now we know that birds sort of regurgitate their food to their, their babies that's really gross actually um so, but now you'll find this symbol of a pelican in uh in different um churches and and people just don't understand why there's a pelican on the altar but um but it, it's a symbol for Christ. So, you know, the, the major parties have the elephant and the donkey and we have a pelican. And um, I love it. It's easier than calling each other solidarists, which just sounds awkward. Indeed, indeed. Yeah. No, I really love that. Anyone who follows me on most social media platforms knows that an image of a pelican from the back of my old breviary oh, yeah. uh, is actually my abbey or whatever on all of these different platforms. So, no, the P.A. Pelicane in the line of St. Thomas Aquinas's Adorote Devote is one very, very close to my heart. So that's awesome. Um, okay, let's talk about third-party politics because I suspect that a lot of our Josias listeners are going to be very on board with the sort of impetus behind your party and on board with at least big, important sections of its platform. But I suspect we're going to have a good number of listeners who say... You know, 
I would rather see Peter and Lauren in the White House in 2024 than anyone else who's going to be on the ticket. But because we know that's not going to be the case, and it sounds like you are not lining up moving companies to get you to uh, downtown DC at this point um, and redecorate the, I don't know what the vice presidential area of the White House is called. The observatory, yeah. Hey, there you go. Uh, So you are planning it out. Good. (laughs) Um, But no, since we know that that is not, uh, not going to be the outcome of this, why should people take seriously third parties and specifically the American Solidarity Party in our system? Because when we have the first past the post, um, I'm using my scare quotes again in our visual medium, um, a first past the post system like we have, which right is just the name for a system where whoever gets the most votes wins. The, the incentives of that are always going to be that you'll only have two real parties in play. Um, and anytime you add more, right, the risk is that you just draw off from the better of the two and so help the other guy or something like this. And so in America, I mean, obviously, you know, growing up, I can remember the Green Party and the Libertarian Party occasionally mentioned, but everyone knew that we really could go red or could go blue. Um, and so that being the case, I think a lot of people who are very Catholic, who would not um, describe themselves most of the year or years as a Republican, when the presidential election rolls around, think it's more useful for me to cast my vote for the lesser of two evils um, than for me to try to find someone that I can write in who would align more closely with what I'd actually like to see happen. Um, So yeah, I guess in general, I'd love to hear from you about third-party politics, um, but then also what the hope of the American Solidarity Party is. What uh, is maybe the best-case scenario, not for the outcome of 2024, but for the future of the party and the impact it could make on the American political landscape, maybe on the GOP? I don't know if that's something y'all think about. Um, yeah, where where do you see this going or where would you like to see all of this go? Yeah, I just want to start by saying that there are a lot of complicated calculations that go into casting a vote. When you're a person of goodwill, there's you know a lot of disagreements and different conclusions you can come to. And I have respect for that. I'm not going to be the person yelling at you to vote for me. Um, I understand that that people have different, you know, have, everyone has a different calculus going into this. But um, yeah, there's there's a bunch of good things you brought up there and trying to think where to start. So um, so third party politics and um, sort of what we're hoping to achieve. So um, one way I've heard it phrased. Um, so you can certainly think of casting a vote for a third party as something like a protest vote, right? Um, but you can also think of it in terms of um, sort of showing your uh, voting for for what you would like to see. So voting in such a way that you are not allowing the major parties to sort of manipulate the narrative, manipulate the truth, and um, putting forward a different vision. So you can see the effect that third parties have had in the political system even like recently, right? Um, 
you can see the, you know, the Green Party gets some fraction of the votes and the Democrats are incorporating more environmental stances into their platform. Or you see the Libertarians gaining votes and you see sort of this Tea Party movement within the Republican Party. Um, when these uh, major parties are looking at the breakdowns after various elections, um, they're they're not um, they're noticing, you know, any significant outliers. Right. So say um say the state of Massachusetts that I live in goes blue and it's going to go blue by several million votes, say. Um, I was going to say, this is a thought experiment, huh? <laughs> Imagine well, a world in which the state of Massachusetts <laughs> went blue. <laughs> um, yes. So unlikely, right? Um, so, so say, you know, um, I don't know the numbers for 2020, but say Biden won by a million votes. Um, okay, your vote to choose a third party candidate is not going to change the result, right? That's not like a swing state scenario um, where your vote is going to, you know, make the the dominant candidate in that state not lose. But if the Democratic or Republican parties were to notice a significant amount of people voting for third parties in that state, they might rethink their approach there or they might rethink sort of their what's making people what's driving people to that choice right which set of values are are these people sort of making it a decision to choose and i think it's it's difficult to say within the party um you have all kinds of visions of where we'll be in a hundred years um but i do think that one of the the big things that third parties can do is sort of influence the direction the platform of major parties or, um, you know, at least get them to take notice that um, that there's a dissatisfaction. So, yeah, so a big part of it is sort of influencing um, sort of the future tone of of um, of elections of major party platforms. There, there is a scenario in which we become a major party. I mean, it's happened before in American history. But in terms of our goals now, like what are our goals going forward? Right now, we're focusing really on growth, on getting our message out to as many folks as possible who might find this sort of message appealing. Peter and I want to grow the party in this next election cycle for sure. We want um, people to... to First of all, even know that we're out there, that we exist. I mean, people are like the American what? Like, what party are you running with? Just to know we're out there, to know we're an option and to expand the sort of dedicated folks in the party who want to help um, make this work. But I think also, at least for me personally, a big goal of this is to inspire people of goodwill, people of faith to jump back in to politics to yeah. not feel like this is so evil and scary and terrible and I just want to tune it out. I mean, I can't tell you the number of um fellow Catholic mothers who just I don't read the news. I don't I don't follow politics. I don't even talk about politics because it's become such a negative in their mind. Um I think one thing our party members do well, you know, is we have the long view in mind, like Christ has won the victory and right. we're living 
you know, as Christians, we're supposed to be living in that victory, living in the victory of the resurrection and knowing that, um, you know, he will ultimately judge and he will, um, you know, he has redeemed us. And so as bad as things are, are, we still put faith in that victory and, and living in that hope. So I think the hopelessness is a temptation for a lot of millennials, especially, um, I'm still learning about Gen Z. I, I I need to I need to get like a Gen Z prime. Like they just taught me what based means, and I'm like, okay, if you say so. But um, <laughs> but especially for millennials, we've just been you know sort of involved in this narrative of of you know it's better just to opt out. And what I would like to see Peter and my campaign and and the the party going forward doing in the next few years is really reinvigorating Christians and saying, we have a place in the public square. We have a right to be in the public square. You don't have to compromise on, you know, the primary relationship in your life to God with your politics. In fact, your politics can flow naturally from your religious beliefs in a holistic, coherent way. Um, So yes, we want to grow the party. And yes, we want to influence policy and I think you're right that there's a growing number of Christians who feel the need for a third way. And I think they're expressing themselves more. They're getting more ink in certain publications. And that I that message is getting out there. Um, and yes, that is that is very important. But right now, our party is still small and we are working towards just simply letting people know we're here and that they have an option and maybe getting them to reconsider you know, what, what the duopoly has done and like just questions that have, that have come up to me, um, since joining is like, why is ballot access so difficult or what, you know, why, why is it so hard for third parties to make any sort of a difference? And, and so, yes, this is a long winded answer again, but, um, just to say that, no, just to say that, um, that yes, like I understand that, you know, it's, it can be seen as wasting your vote. But I do think that there is truth in the argument that people will, people in power pay attention to these outliers in election situations. Um, and you can tell because right now the like democratic hysteria over third parties in a bunch of media outlets recently has been so over the top. I mean, there was a tweet that the American Solidarity responded to about, you know, we're ushering in fascism by like allowing these third parties to exist. And and it's always you're always spoiling it for the other person, right? Like the Democrats are going to accuse you of having Trump win and the, the Republicans are going to accuse you of leading to Biden's victory. It's always interesting. No matter who you're talking to, they tend to say, like, this is your fault somehow. But um, but what if we're just dissatisfied with our options? Like we deserve to to have other options we deserve to have options that we're excited about and don't feel icky for voting for so um yeah i hope that that answers your question yeah no absolutely yeah it also it's just great that uh even the american solidarity party can bring out charges of ushering in fascism that word like so many other words right now are I'm just increasingly scared that we're lowering the cost of actually subscribing to those things because if everything's that, then 
people just bite the bullet and say, okay, then I guess I'll just be a fascist. If everyone's telling me I'm a fascist for questioning this, that, or the other, just go all in on that. And that is also obviously not the direction any of us want this to go. Um, My husband has a funny uh, line that he says, because um, American media outlets always uh, uh, call Poland's government far right at the moment. Um, Not that I'm endorsing them or anything, but he always replies, you don't know how far right can go in Europe. (laughs) You know, we can't can't just throw (laughs) these terms around like they are meaningless, right? Yeah. You made me think of a minute ago, and unless you have anything else, I can uh, close us out here with this anecdote, but you were talking about third-party influence on the major parties and the way that the Libertarian Party or the kind of libertarian movement back uh, now over a decade ago helped lead to the creation of the Tea Party. You and I had two friends in college who I may screw up some of the details of this now, but who basically came to the church, who entered the church by way of the Catholic worker movement um, and were very involved in the Catholic worker movement after they graduated living in Catholic worker houses for a bit and doing different things. And they got married. They now have many kids. A wonderful, wonderful couple. Um, But anyway, I was with both of them, but I was standing with the husband at a conference one time at Yale. And it was a panel that his wife and I were doing Um, called Pro-Lifers Who Hate Pro-Life Conferences on where we go from here, which was fun. But anyway, I was standing there with him between these talks, and John Samirak walked by in a t-shirt that said Tea Party Catholic. I think he'd been the editor on that book. Um, And our friend uh, just dropped his jaw and turned to me and said, is that ironic, or is that meant to be like an actual thing? Because, of course, for him, solidarity was very much what had first drawn him to the faith um, period. Of course, Christ, at the end of the day, is the one drawing him and is the reason that he entered the church. But it was the experience of the solidarity of the Catholic worker movement that first gave him that access to hearing Christ's message. So he was appalled that um, something so individualist and kind of anti-communitarian and anti authoritarian in a certain kind of way, right? Something that is against the true authority of the state for promoting the common good of its citizens um, could be (laughs) uh, have the adjective Catholic prefix to it. Yeah, it's funny that you bring up that couple in particular because, yeah, they were so devoted to Dorothy Day and the Catholic worker. And I remember arguing with them in college, you know, sort of swallowing all the rhetoric of the right and spitting it back up to them and then be like, no, Lord, no. <laughs> they, they were definitely a huge influence on me politically at that time. Yeah, me as well. Um, and I don't know, I, I keep up with them both just a little bit, but not enough to be able to speak to their politics today uh, or how they've evolved in the past decade, all that clearly. But Dorothy Day is a complicated figure and the Catholic worker is a complicated group. Um, But I think there's so much good that's there in what that movement has achieved and so much, um, yeah, a kind of eye-opening or shattering of the glass, the, you know, how I met your mother sound when you have the awful realization of the problem with the person you're dating and the glass breaks. Um, It's that kind of thing for realizing like, oh man, maybe what's, I was taught um, 
being a right-wing Catholic, quote-unquote, or something is, maybe this needs to expand and be able to incorporate um, a larger and more Catholic vision of what politics is in the first place. And it sounds like the American Solidarity Party um, is really reaching deep into our tradition, drawing deeply from that well from Rerum Navarum and the rest of the Catholic social encyclical tradition and so forth, um, and trying to actually do something concrete with that in America today. So Lauren, it's been really, really awesome to have you on the podcast and hear more about y'all's campaign. And we assure you of the prayers of all of our listeners and certainly of our team here at the Josias and look forward to seeing what decorating choices you make with the White House. Thank you, Urban. Thank you so much for having me. And yes, prayer is the best way you can help me and Peter on this campaign. So thank you. And I've already told you that uh, just by sending the email that led other friends to think you had been hacked, um, you already definitely earned at least one vote because I have not voted for the American Solidarity Party in the past, despite quite liking many things about the party. But I know that you will never forgive me if I do not vote for you. So you have earned a vote for the Peter and Lauren ticket this time around. We'll go ahead and end it there. Thank you so much again to Lauren Onak for coming on the show today. Thanks to Joe Barnes for producing this episode once he wakes up. Thanks also to Jonathan Colbreth for our music. Thank you to all of our listeners. And thank you especially to our good benefactors on Patreon. If you enjoyed this episode of the Josiah's Podcast and you would like to hear more like it in the future, please head over to patreon.com slash Josiah's to help make that possible. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook if you don't already. Check out our law blog, Use at Justitium, and find us, most importantly, at thejosias.com. Thank you.